All right, good morning, beloved. Let's just see a few more people came in this morning. I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and this morning we'll be covering verses 18 to 21. I want to begin today by first uh, reading our text, and then after we can see how each of these verses apply. So again, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Here now is the word of the living and true God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Some interesting verses once again in this second chapter of 1 Peter. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, humanity has been um, ensnared in a spiritual battle. And uh, we all know this. God told Satan in Genesis 3.15 that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, there will be conflict between the children of God and the children of the devil. When we get to the book of Daniel, we learn there are spiritual uh, battles in the heavenlies as demons are engaged in warfare against the angels of God. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, all of this spiritual warfare came into much clearer view in the time of Christ. You might be able to tell from reading your New Testament that the spiritual warfare kicked up a notch once the Son of Man came on the scene. And when he came into the world, he clearly identified the, the two sides when he talked about the children of God and the children of the devil. For example, in John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's the basic spiritual battle right there. And as the children of God, that's what we're all facing. 
Now, I know for a lot of us, we have been so incredibly blessed and protected from experiences, maybe firsthand. But don't kid yourself into thinking that just because you haven't experienced it to maybe this depth just yet, that it doesn't exist. There's an entire world system out there that hates Christ, and if Christ who dwells in you, you are a threat to the system, the demonic system of hell. Jesus continued his warning to his disciples in John chapter 16, just to give you an idea of what the first century apostles were dealing with. This is what he said, indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Wow. In other words, there will be those in a religious system who are so blinded to the truth of God that they will kill the people of God in the name of God. In other words, they will be so under a strong delusion of false religion that they will be blind. And Jesus says in verse 3, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So you have a, a society of people who do not know the true God or, or Christ, who have a false religion, who hate the children of God. And of course, this is nothing new. It's been going on since God's people were first begun. And what Satan does is he, he energizes them in an effort to derail the work of God and to tarnish the testimony of God's bride, the church. And he attacks the church in a variety of ways. Well, one of his favorite weapons to devastate the work of God is to find the failures of the people who say that they belong to God. He identifies then those failures, and then he parades those failures before the world to see. In other words, one of Satan's favorite weapons is to dig up dirt on people who say that they know God and then parade this scandal before the watching world. And inevitably, that discredits us, the church, in a major way. And this is what we've seen, especially from the global church over the last 20 years as um, it's become common knowledge of front page scandals over sex, scandals over money, scandals over supposed pastors using their power and their authority to take advantage of the most vulnerable. These are all things and much more that Satan uses to discredit the church. And then let me take it a further. Satan also plants people in the church. There's not just a false church out there. He plants people in a true church, and they will use the label as Christian for themselves, and then they will go out in public and live lives totally opposite to the life of a Christian that we are called to live, so that then they can be used to destroy the credibility of a witness for Christ. So Satan not only uses our, our real failures, our own sins that we have as Christians, but he also uses the failures of hypocrites who were planted in the church as tares among the wheat for no other purpose than to scandalize the church and to discredit her testimony. And the world loves, the world loves to see the church exposed and all sorts of shortcomings 
and sin and scandals and sex and corruption. So it's people that can justify their unbelief by saying, see, I told you they're all a bunch of hypocrites down there. What a bunch of phonies. The church is nothing but a sham. So as we live in this crooked and perverse generation, it is essential to our Christian testimony that we live lives that not only honors and glorifies God, but that we live in such a way that we point people to Christ. Um, that is the heart and soul of the church's witness. Much more important a lot of times than what we say is how we live to the testimony of Christ, to the believability of the gospel, and the transforming power that it has over one's life. And this is the issue, really, that unlocks all of 1 Peter. That we are to live godly lives, that we are to be different from the rest of the world, that you are to be holy as God says that I am holy. And that is deeply set into the Apostle Peter's heart as he writes this first epistle. He is calling the church to virtue. Let me just give you a quick run through of a few examples that we have already gone through in 1 Peter. Notice back in chapter 1 and verse 7, he talks about the proof of your faith being more precious than gold. When you live a life that trusts God, even as you're going through various trials and testings, you verify the reality of your faith, making it more precious than gold. And when others see that true, authentic faith, it adds credibility to Christianity. And then there was in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And again, it's the same idea. Be obedient children. Don't behave like you used to when you walked in your former loss and ignorance. Your testimony is at stake. The world is watching. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, put aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation Again, what's he saying? Live a godly life, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let God's word shape you so that you can grow in your salvation. In chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. You want to lead someone to Christ? It's not only what you say, but it's how you live. So Peter instructs these believers to keep their behavior excellent um, among the pagans so that they may see your good deeds. And as they observe them, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. What Peter means is, is that is that through their own godly example, a seed will be planted. And there will be those who will eventually come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and in the end, God will be glorified when he returns. And of course, we know that is exactly 
what has happened as the gospel of Jesus Christ spread like wildfire across the entire Roman Empire, transforming lives in every province and city and eventually around the world to the uttermost parts of the earth, just as Jesus predicted. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, again, we find the same sort of message here. We covered this last week as we talked about in verse 13. Submit yourselves to every human institution, verse 15, for such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So last week we talked about whenever possible, whenever possible we are to submit ourselves to every God-ordained human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors, and we do this, verse 13 says, for the Lord's sake, verse 16 continues with this, act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So again, Peter is calling us to live a virtuous life. Not using our freedom as Christ as a license to rebel and sin, but rather when you do what is right, they will see your God-honoring faith being lived out, and that adds credibility to the life-changing power of the gospel. So this is the theme that runs right through all five chapters of First Peter. Let me just show you one more before we get into our verses today. In chapter 3, in verse 1, you have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. What is she to do? How is she to be an effective uh, witness for Christ? This is incredibly powerful. Notice what Peter says in verse 1. He says, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that means even if they are unsaved, want nothing to do with the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your pure and respectable behavior. How does a, a saved wife win her unsaved husband to Christ, you ask? By her God-honoring conduct. Verse 3, for your adornment must not be merely external. Braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on the dress but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality, listen, of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. What do you do when you have an unbelieving spouse? Peter says, win them by your godly conduct with a pure and respectable behavior, being gentle quiet in spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And we could get, keep going right through every single chapter as Peter keeps bringing us back not to live as the rest of the world, but live rather with a kind of sacrificial, submissive heart, showing us it's not only what we say, but it's how we live that can have a powerful impact in the lives of the unbelieving, as it is a testimony to the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, now as we come to our verses this morning, our text in verse 18, this is the second of three real-life examples that Peter is using from the first century, though they certainly apply to each of us today as well. 
The first one we covered last week, a Christian citizen living amongst a pagan government. That was verses 13 to 17. The second one is what we're covering today, a Christian servant and an unbelieving master, verses 18 to 21. And then the third one I just mentioned in chapter 3, verse 1, is a Christian wife and an unbelieving husband. So Peter, through the Spirit of God, is addressing a number of spiritual realities that these persecuted first century Christians were dealing with. And I want you just to imagine for a moment before we start this that you are in fact one of these exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who is under the occupation of the Roman Empire. But praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Yes, you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And now you are living stones who are being built up for this spiritual house as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are now not just in exile, but you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And while this spiritual reality was true, there was also another reality that would be impossible for us to ignore. Many of these Christians were slaves. And we'll discuss exactly what that means as we get into our text. So let's consider this, and we begin with point number one, and the mandate to submit. The mandate to submit. This is what we are called to do once again. Notice what it says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, in order to apply Peter's message correctly, we need to understand what this word translated servants mean. It's the Greek word oiketse, and it refers to a household servant. Now, the NIV translates it as slaves because in Peter's time of writing this, most of the workforce was indeed made up of slaves. In fact, estimates say there were between 20 and 40 million slaves at this point in time. And especially in the Roman world, they viewed manual labor and even some professions below them. Why should they work when they can have a servant or a slave do the job for them? Now, it would be incorrect for us to understand slavery in Peter's day as similar to the slavery that existed back in our own dark history and from around the world. For starters, Roman slavery wasn't based on your ethnicity. That had nothing to do with it. Rome, in fact, acquired most of their slaves as a result of war. Prisoners were of defeated nations were then put into the Roman workforce based upon their education and their skill level. In fact, slavery constituted up to 40% of the total workforce in Rome, and therefore it was a really mixed experience 
for each slave. For example, those who had an education were treated more like servants or even employees as they worked in the homes as maids, cooks, tutors, while others became accountants, musicians, or even village doctors. But don't let this uh, kid you. This wasn't always the case. As many Christians were treated terribly and lived lives of unimaginable cruelty. After all, Roman law designated slaves as property and not actual people. And so slavery was a very common problem in the first century. And even before that, what were the children of Israel coming out of Egypt? Slaves. They were the Egyptians' slaves. As soon as the fall of Adam and Eve, man went into rebellion against the will of God. And it was only a matter of time until they figured out through force or might that they could uh, oppress or enslave one another. So as Peter is writing to these first century Christians, he's writing into an incredibly difficult time. And while some of these Christians had loving masters over them, and some appreciate just having a job, something to eat, and a warm place to sleep, others faced a far more difficult reality. So we ask the question then, why is Peter commanding these servants to submit to these masters? Why is he criticizing the the institution of slavery and advocating for its overthrow? Abolish it. Well, for starters, you'll notice from the reading of the New Testament, their writers were not social revolutionaries And by the way, neither was Jesus. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform a culture. Rather, their concern was the relationship for the individual to God. And they focused on sin and rebellion in one's heart. And so the New Testament authors all believed in the total life, transformation, power of the Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only means, the only means for any kind of true Social change. If enough individuals are transformed by the gospel, society that has a whole benefits and the Christian faith begins to function as a leveling influence. But that change cannot happen until the old hearts of stone are taken out and the new hearts of flesh are inserted in. Only then does change take place. So let's consider verse 18 and notice the mandate for submission. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So the mandate for submission is simply this. Servants, be subject to or or submit to your masters. If you work for someone else, you are to submit to their authority. And do it, Peter says, with all respect, and that is without bitterness or negativity but with an attitude of gracious honor. It actually can be translated literally with all fear. The NIV translates it probably best. In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves. That is correct. That is the fear of God. And every time this word is used, it's talking about the fear of God, not the fear of man. Because God has ordained this social order. God has designed that some people are employer and some people are employee. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? 
do not worry about it. Stay a slave. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. So some of these early Christians might have thought, well, now that I'm a Christian and free, I don't need to be a slave anymore. But Peter's saying, not so. Paul's saying, 1 Corinthians 7, not so. Christianity itself is not a freedom marker of slavery. It doesn't give you equality. It doesn't give you equal social rights. Christianity doesn't guarantee to you that you no longer have to submit to any earthly employer or to a leader. That's not what the gospel is about. It doesn't interfere with the social order. Rather, verse 22 says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is now the Lord's freedman. You're free in the Lord. Still a slave, you're free in the Lord. And so, yes, you are free in Christ. But now you are to serve him, and he has called you to submit to your earthly master. Galatians 3.28 says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Well, that doesn't mean then that there are no roles cut out in the Bible for male or for female. God has clearly marked different roles for us in Scripture. But rather, there is neither slave nor free positionally in Christ. Positionally, we are all one in Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.21 does say, if you are able to become free, great, do that. If your master is letting you go or someone has been able to buy you out, great, you don't have to stay a slave. You are certainly free to go. But until you are free, Peter says you are to submit to your masters with all respect. And then notice the end of verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You know, it's easy to obey when we agree. We talked about this last week with our governors. It's easy to submit when your boss is also good and, and considerate. We all agree with them then. Well, what about when we don't agree? What about when your boss is unjust? Then, then what do we do? This is what the apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. He says, slaves are to be obedient to those who are your masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service or as men pleasers. In other words, don't just do it when they're looking at you but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. See, you're serving God in what he has you in. Verse 7, with goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men. So God can use you in those situations, and he's asking you to submit. You're serving him. Here's the bottom line. No matter where it is that you work, you have a mission field. You have a spiritual calling. And your calling is to reach people for Christ wherever God has placed you for work. And when your unsaved employer sees you at work and that you are submitting, not only to the good and the gentle boss, but in humility also to the unjust one, something incredible happens. Something miraculous happens. They witness a kind of love that's different than the rest of the world. A sacrificial kind of love. You're serving Christ. You submit to Christ. 
The world only knows one way to love, and that's what's in it for me. That's the basic course of human nature. If you're nice to me, well, then I'm going to be nice to you. But Jesus calls us to love way further and way deeper and to extent, doesn't he? He said in John chapter 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, sacrificially, eternally. He said in Matthew 5, verse 46, for you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see, when we submit ourselves with a sincere heart and we put their needs before our own and we're serving our employer like we're serving Christ, do you know what happens as a result? Your testimony overwhelms them. You silence the critics, we saw in last week's verses. They have no way to discredit your Christian faith. You are faithful in all that you do. And those who witness it just might be the seed that God uses to bring one of your loudest critics to Christ. For that is the mandate of our submission. That's two points. Today that was number one. Let's move on to point number two. And the motive for our submission. What is the motive to do this besides we're commanded to? <laughs> Notice what it says in, in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. That's it. <laughs> That's the motive. Why should we submit for this uh, is charis, literally in the Greek. For this is a grace. And, and what does that mean? A, a, a gift or a blessing brought to man by God. A free gift. The, the, the motivation of our submission in the workplace resides in that short phrase, for this is a gracious thing. This is a sacrifice of praise that is pleasing to God. We don't really know anymore what it means to sacrifice anything, do we? We're too busy worrying about my rights and what I deserve and me, me, me. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. God is pleased, you see, when we humble ourselves under authority, when we love our enemies, when we submit to unjust masters for the purpose of evangelism. Notice the rest of this verse, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I'm going to guess that's not a bumper sticker on the back of any of your cars. <laughs> so imagine, here's a guy or a gal, in the workplace, they're a slave. In the Roman world, he's very likely getting whipped unjustly. He might be getting dep uh, deprived of his food unjustly. He certainly is working um, long extended hours beyond what is reasonable unjustly. Likely he's suffered any number of things unjustly. And what Peter says, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, you endure those sorrows unjustly what he means here is is that as you suffer unjustly whether it's by an unjust slave master unjust persecution 
or by any means of the things that in this world that can bring injustice into your life, that by God's Spirit you suffer well. If you are mindful in God in your suffering, there's an intimate fellowship to be had with Christ. For when you suffer unjustly, you are sharing in the unjust sufferings of your beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. You share in His sufferings. Can we suffer for Christ? This is gracious, beloved, when mindful of God, that you suffer well. And yes, certainly, external parts of us might grimace under physical pain, but deep within your heart, these Christians, there was a joy to be had. It cannot be naturally explained, it's supernatural. And as you persevere through this unjust suffering for the only purpose that God would be glorified. Use me, God. Use my injustice for your glory. Can we submit like that? Can the church submit like that? How are we going to make it? When we suffer injustice, God's presence, I hope you know, is never more clearly experience in the brokenness and the despair as when you share in the sufferings of Christ. You know he's there. Oh, thank God he's with me. He's watching. He's enduring me through this pain. Suffering. Now, painful, unjust beatings, were being endured, no doubt, by some of these people reading this epistle. Situations far worse than anything that we have ever even known. They owned these slaves. You were owned. There was no such thing as freedom. They couldn't change jobs. They had no labor unions. There was no one to go to. There was no better business bureau. There was no human resource department. There were no civil lawsuits open to them against their employers so they had to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly can you imagine beloved can you imagine what these early christians went through but their blood that was spilt is our foundation and our christianity today is too troubled spending an hour praising God and worship. Peter himself said, I am unworthy to be crucified as my Savior was, it was reported. And so he was crucified upside down and reportedly first he had to watch as they murdered his wife. But these early Christians were, were mindful of God as they endured many sufferers, sorrows while suffering, suffering unjustly. But through it all, they were totally committing themselves to trusting God. And they did so with a quiet, submissive spirit, with a, with a patient heart that was loyal and faithful and diligent, willing to die if it meant a testimony faithful to Christ that would be left behind for His glory. 
Then Peter expands the thought with a negative and positive statement in verse 20. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? The implied answer is there is no credit in it. There's no particular virtue. If you have sinned and you've been punished for it, you're simply receiving what you deserve. But on the other hand, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And here's that same statement again from verse 19. A gracious thing in the sight of God. When you do good and suffer for it, this finds favor with God. So the motive for submitting and enduring is what? It pleases God. God is pleased. And when we accept the earthly difficulty with complete faith in him, that becomes a virtuous testimony. You want to leave a, a testimony at work? Do what is right, even if it costs you everything. In their time, these Christians were willing to suffer and to endure sorrow because they believed that through their suffering, God would be glorified, the kingdom would be spread, and you know what? They were right, weren't they? And... That's how we have to leave an effective testimony. This is a glorious thing in the sight of God. That's pleasing to God. This was a uh, radical teaching, but it wasn't uh, anything new. Peter actually learned this from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is what? Great. Great. Can we as Christians have a, a heavenly view once in a while? Or do we always have to have everything we want right now here? Can we, can we live a couple days for what matters in eternity? Our first century brothers and sisters lived, Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Sometimes we have to lay down our wants and our needs for something bigger than ourselves. And Peter says, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then close up with verse 21. He closes this section, really, it's introducing a, a new section that we'll jump in next week, a, a wonderful section, but we'll dip our toes in it just for a second. Notice what it says there in verse 21. For to this you have been called. Whoa. You have been called for this purpose. What, what does he mean? called salvation salvation call look down at uh, verse 9 but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light that's salvation so when you were saved 
You were saved for a purpose. But what does he mean, verse 21? For this you have been called. What's this? What's this that he's talking about? Well, notice 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. So what purpose were they called to? To patiently endure their suffering that they didn't deserve. But that's what they were called to. You say, how come? Because as soon as you became a Christian, you became an enemy of the world. And so as you live out your Christian life, you will likely be unjustly and fairly hated. You are a bold witness for Christ, whether you're in a, a work environment or, or any kind of a dealing with the world system. Somewhere along the way, Satan is coming against you. We are all in a spiritual battle that dates all the way back to the fall of man in the garden. Let me just remind you one more time what Jesus said in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, which we all once were, the world would love you as its own. See, when we're in the world, you're just like everybody else. You blend right into the, to the system. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And all the apostles died knowing this truth. That's what you've been called to. You've been called to this. To suffer undeservably and to endure it with godly patience. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It goes with the territory. That's how it is and... We don't run from it. We shine as lights in the midst of it. We are ambassadors of Christ. We don't live for this world. We live for the next one. And what is our motive to live like this? If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is gracious thing for the sight of God. Simply, it pleases God and he will bless you. God will bless you. The rest of verse 21 is for next week, but let's just read through this as Christ leaves us his example. It says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Christ do? He was reviled, he was persecuted, he was slandered, he suffered and died. What did he do? He did not retaliate. He answered not a word at his trial. In meekness and humility, he committed himself to God. And so Peter says Christ suffered for you, not only redemptively, but in an exemplary um, kind of a way. He, he didn't only suffer to, to redeem 
you. He suffered to set the, the model for how you and I are to live beyond the, the redemptive work of the cross. This is a pattern for suffering in Christ. He was portrayed by Isaiah as a suffering servant. They were all looking for a king to rule. Christ is both the king and suffering servant. Peter says, let us, uh, Peter says he left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. And that word example means he set a pattern for us. Actually, it's the idea of um, putting a piece of paper down and you can see through and trace the lines. He, he left us a, an imprint, a perfect example of how to live. And then this word steps actually means footprints. He, he left a line of footprints in the sand for you and I to walk in in the same way as he. Isn't that beautiful? Let's hold fast to the truth. For whether you realize it or not, my brothers and sisters, you are in a battle, my friends. A very real battle. But in Christ, he has shown us the way. Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We know the way, don't we? Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to heaven but through trust in Christ and Christ alone. The disciples said there is salvation found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And I call on you today to put your, your faith and trust in the name that is above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you need prayers this morning, as Katie said, you are welcome to come forward now or, or to stay after. We'd be happy to pray with you. This time I want to invite you to please stand as we praise the Lord. Sing to him our living hope. Bless you.